The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. <laughs> We're pleased to welcome Beth Nielsen Chapman. She's a singer, songwriter, recording artist, a creativity teacher. She's an inductee of the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. 2018 is seeing the release of her new album, Hearts of Glass. Her songs have been recorded by everyone from Faith Hill and Willie Nelson. Elton John even performed her song. It's a great pleasure to welcome you. Thank you, Paul. It's great to be talking to you. My pleasure. Do you think that songwriters get enough respect? Well, uh, I think they get incredible respect from human beings in general because I think that what songwriting does is it offers all of us humans an opportunity to get our hearts opened up and sometimes get our tears flowing and sometimes get ourselves laughing. So um, the respect of people absorbing songs and react reacting to them has always been alive and well. I think that the songs themselves get respect. And I think sometimes the songwriters are a bit invisible. And that's always been the case. But it's never been so difficult as it is right now to actually also get compensated as a songwriter because of all the transition that's going on and the the laws are not really there to protect us during a time when there are lots of big tech companies that are making lots of money off of, you know, the, the creator's work. But that said, my speech to songwriters in general is just don't let that keep you from writing. Um, we have every reason to stay creative and work as hard as we can to, to fix what's wrong and just be, be able to try to keep our creative energy from getting in, ensnared by feeling point like it's pointless or anything. So how about that for a short answer to your question? <laughs> well, when you write a song, are you thinking about the audience? No, I'm not. I'm absolutely trying not to think about who I'm singing it to or in terms of like the audience or whether it's going to be successful. I, I just try to write the song that I need to write from my own experience to into the world, you know, sort of, I'm usually trying to heal through something or trying to figure out something in my own life. And the best songs I've ever written were for entirely selfish reasons. And then by virtue of just being in that place of trying to sort it through myself, that's when you create something that other people can identify with. And that's sort of a lovely byproduct, but it's never the intention. Uh, if I were trying to please other people, I don't think I would be able to write very good songs. How important is relaxing when it comes to writing? I think it's very important to have fun and play on the front end of starting the song. Uh, I would think, you know, I always just try to get people to go back to being childlike and just see where it goes and have fun and try not to analyze it too much. Finishing a song is a very different thing. It's where you bring it out, your razor sharp, you know, uh, tools and you're trying to make sure this matches and that's going to work and all that, which is analyzing and editing. Those are all skills that are involved in bringing a song to completion. 
but they are they have nothing to do with actually writing the song. They have to do with finishing the song and editing the song. Um, so those are all very important. But in order to really get a great song, you got to have fun and play on the front end. Would you say that you prefer writing with someone else or you prefer writing solo? I think I can't really pick one over the other, but I would say that if I haven't written by myself in a very long time, I'm usually not as good writing with other people. I think it's a muscle. Uh, it's a specific muscle that needs to stay in shape. The I can finish the song by myself muscle is a really good one to keep in shape. So I will always book a certain amount of time to finish stuff on my own so I can really be better working with other people too. So yeah, it's important to do both. As mentioned at the beginning of the interview, there have been some very iconic singers who have interpreted your song. And I would be curious to know not which one you you like, what version you like more, but if there was one that surprised you more. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, one of the stories that I tell a lot, because I think it's an important learning experience for me, was that way back in the early 90s when Willie Nelson recorded um, a song I wrote for him called Nothing I Can Do About It Now. I, I was invited to come to the studio and sing on it, play guitar on it. It was so much fun. And I couldn't believe he was even cutting my song. And when I wrote the song, I really, you know, geared it towards sort of sounding rhythmically very close to On the Road Again, because that was his whole vibe, you know, On the Road Again. So I had this kind of kind of train beat to the demo, which is what I thought was the way to do the song. Well, we get in the studio and his drummer just kicks it off and he has a completely different beat on the drums. It's more like a shuffle. And Willie's singing along, and I I could barely play guitar. I, I I didn't even know, I couldn't even relate to it at first. And I just remember thinking, oh no, it's it's wrong, you know. And and I was worried that it would never see the light of day. Well, it got to be his first single, and then I was worried that it was just going to flop because I even as I heard the record finished, I I just could not get myself used to it because I was used to the way I had done it on the demo. So I ended up you know, watching it go up the chart. And I didn't even tell anybody I wrote it because I was sure it was going to flop, you know. <laughs> and then hmm. as it went into the top 10, it started sounding really good to me. I was thinking, you know, this sounds really good. So I was telling people, hey, I wrote that song, you know. And by the time it went to number one, I was completely in love with his version of it. So it taught me that there's more than one way to do something and um, never to argue with Willie Nelson about what he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> How did Elton John come to hear your song? Actually, I was uh, invited to go to some rehearsals for a big, a big thing called the Rainforest Benefit concerts that were happening in New York. And I, I'm friends with Bonnie Raitt, and she invited me to go with her to just hang out the day of the rehearsals. And it was like a dream come true because like James Taylor and everybody was there, you know, Sting and, and Elton was there. And I happened to have in my pocket, I happened to have a cassette of the demo of Sand and Water. And I handed it to Elton and I had told, and I told him my husband had died and I'd written this song uh, and I was making a record. So anyway, when the record came out, he really loved it. And he evidently went on the Oprah show and was telling her, you know, that it was really helping him to get through the death of 
Diana and Versace and all these people that he had had in his life. So he called me on the phone one day and asked me if he could, if I'd mind if he sang it in place of Candle in the Wind on his North American tour in 1997. Of course, I was thrilled, you know. And it, just to, ha- to hear him sing that song coming from his voice was so spectacular. As a as a songwriter, I'd have to say, is one of the high points of my of my life as a songwriter to hear Elton John singing Sand and Water. And I could hear the song so differently from his voice because, of course, it sounded like an Elton John song. And uh, brilliant. It was a brilliant moment for me. I wanted you to tell us a little bit about Hearts of Glass, this album of yours. Mm-hmm. What does that mean to you, Hearts of Glass? Well, the song that it came from is called Epitaph for Love. And it's about, uh, the song is about kind of the end of a relationship. But it has a line in the song that says, diving headlong off the overpass with our hearts of glass for love, which is basically, you know, that the heart is this strong, centering part of us that really kind of drives our whole being and our whole life if we let it, which is a good thing. And it's, it's very strong, but it's also very fragile and it can be broken. And I just thought that the whole group of songs on this album had that in common. They, they kind of were poised between that place between vulnerability and strength. And that's kind of how I ended up naming the whole album Hearts of Glass. I'm hoping you can tell us about some of your influences, in particular, maybe influences that people wouldn't expect. Gosh. I mean, I was influenced by many things in life. I mean, besides songs or music, I mean, I was influenced deeply when my dad was in the Air Force. And so I grew up on Air Force bases up until I was about 12 or 13. So Air Force bases are kind of like a little bubble. And we lived in uh, New England and we lived in California. I was born in Texas, but I was only there when I was a baby. And we moved all around. And then we lived in Germany when I was 11, 10 to 10 to 11 years old. And at that time, one of the school field trips that we had was to go to Dachau, which is a concentration camp, believe it or not. Um, and it was so overwhelming, really. I was pretty I would say too young to go, you know, touring through a a concentration camp, but it had a profound effect on my, on my mind and my heart, um, that human beings would be capable of such terrible stuff that it really caused me to, it kind of jumpstarted me into writing songs. I, I had a little guitar and I just started writing a lot during that time. And then when, when my dad got his orders, we were, stationed we were to be stationed in montgomery alabama so we moved to montgomery alabama in 1969 and that was right at the height of the civil rights movement so all of those things really had a big influence on my on my perspective on being in the world and you know it being a place where there's there's a lot of good people but there's a lot of things that are really scary (laughs) so i think that Hmm. really it's not even that I ended up writing all protest songs, but it really informed me to to use songwriting as a way to get through emotions that I felt were overwhelming. And that, that did, you know, make a big influence on my life. This might be kind of in left out from out in left field, but when I was listening to the Hearts of Glass album, there were a mm-hmm. couple songs that made me wonder 
if the American songbook, if the early crooners were at all an influence on you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Musically, my influences are so eclectic, but my my start of my love affair with music came from my parents' records. And then they had Edie Gourmet and they had Robert Grulet and they had all the, the American songbook artists singing those songs across the board. And that was one of my earliest imprints, I think. I loved the way that they were seamlessly written, that the, the melody and the words never pulled against each other. There was always just this effortless sort of conversational way that those songs were written. And I have always tried to emulate that uh, in my writing. I listened to your interview on Soda Jerker. Oh, yeah. And really, they did a great job. And you were telling the story about writing This Kiss. Yes. Yeah. And I'm hoping that you can tell us a little bit about why you think that that song has resonated with so many people. Well, I think it's a it's a great song. It's got such great catchy parts and pieces to it. Annie Roboff really got it started melodically, and she had a lot of influence on the chord structure and stuff. And I think it's about something that's just joyous, you know, like being kissed correctly. <laughs> like, that's something that people can all go, oh, yeah, that's great. And then, you know, you marry that with a great artist, Faith Hill, who was really at a pinnacle of her career, and she was poised to go to the next level. So we hand her this great song, and it was her producers did a great job. And it was all those things that you can dream about as a songwriter when all those parts line up correctly. I mean, I can tell you, you know, many times I've had a great song, wrong timing, or the great artist, but they didn't put it on the record. All sorts of things can go wrong, you know. Um, but in the case of this kiss, it was all a perfect storm, and and it resulted in this massive hit. And uh, it's it's been one of the wonderful things about my songwriting career, and certainly helped put my son through college. So I can't complain. <laughs> <laughs> Is there any artist that you can think of that? In the back of your mind, you've thought, this would be, this song for my catalog would be a perfect song for fill in the blank, but you haven't gotten it oh, to them. Yeah, millions of them. <laughs> <laughs> Songwriters are always thinking about that, you know. Uh, every time you write a song, when you get it finished, you think, oh, who could do this, you know. And I've, asked, I've also had people ask me, like, did I regret giving this kiss to Faith Hill instead of cutting it myself? And, and actually I have cut it myself. I've never held a song back because it doesn't mean that I can't do my own version of it. And you may the best man win is the way I look at it. So yeah, I mean, we're always thinking, you know, where can this song land? That's definitely a, a big conversation in the head of every songwriter finishing up a song. <laughs> well, maybe you could give us a couple of examples of singers and maybe songs that songs that you feel could match. I'm not sure what you mean. What do you mean, like? Well, I've asked artists before, and they've said things like, you know, I have this certain song, and I always felt like if Tony Bennett got a hold of it, or whoever, you know. <laughs> oh, I see. Well, you know, on the new record, there's a new song called You're Still My Valentine, and, you know, my dream would be somebody like Adele cutting that song, or... Tony Bennett would be really good, too. It's one of those ones that's kind of from that era, that timeless American songbook era. And I I feel like, uh, you know, that 
there's some songs on this new record, like If My World Didn't Have You is another one that's a, it's a very country song. It's actually one of the ones that Willie had recorded a few years back. Um, I've always thought, you know, somebody like Chris Stapleton would do a great version of that. Again, a lot of the people I'm, I have in mind also write their own songs. So, you know, there's, there's that, you know, there's, there's the likelihood that they would probably choose songs that they've written themselves. So this is just a pipe dream, I guess, but we can dream. (laughs) True. Is there anything about your life that surprises you? Yeah. The, the big surprise to me is that I, even though I'm getting ready to turn 62, I don't feel old. And, um, that would have been old a little while back, you know, and I'm, and I'm surprised at how much I still want to do. And, and I'm aware of time, you know, when you get on the other side of 60, you start to be aware that you lived most of your life on the other side, you know, but I don't feel, I just feel like it's, it's really curious to me to be at this point in my life and still feel like there's so much I have yet to do. And I've done a lot. I mean, looking back over it, I've done a lot, but I don't feel anywhere near close to retiring. And I guess if I, you'd asked me that question in my 20s, what am I going to be doing when I'm 62? I would have said, I'll be slowing down, you know, but I'm speeding up, I think. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think it is about the, the audience over there in the United Kingdom, in England and so forth, that they have resonated with your music? You know, I don't. I don't really know. Um, I know that I've gone and toured there very, very regularly. So I have, you know, maybe developed that, that solid relationship with that audience more than, you know, like when you think about it, I mean, the UK is the size of, size of Rhode Island. So, I mean, America is so massive, you know, and the UK is a very focused place. But I would say that, you know, I find the fans there are really knowledgeable, like, somebody will come up to me in the autograph line and they'll say, you know, that second track on your first album, the bass player, you know, he, he just died. I'm like, how would you even, how would I even know what the second track on that album was 10 years ago? You know, they're very (laughs) specific and, um, you know, they deeply absorb the music. And I think that's also something that happens in, in, in the States. But in, I think because the UK is such a concentrated area, I get a sense of that more in that, in that area. But I have great fans over here and over there. I'm, I'm thrilled to have people that follow my music and, and, uh, and have supported me through the years. I'm hoping you can tell us about an interaction, a compliment, something touching that someone has told you. Could be anything a fan has told you. Well, one of the most touching things I remember hearing back from someone one time was that was a was a letter that I got from a guy who had been um had lost his wife 15 years before and he said he'd just go to work and he'd come home every day and his friends were trying to get him to go bowling and do stuff but he was he just wanted to come home and watch tv and eat a tv dinner and go to bed and get up and go to work and over and over and he had heard a song of mine on the radio called sand and water that I had written after my husband died and he said he went and he had to go out and buy a handheld CD player because he didn't even have that. <laughs> and he went out and bought one. He bought the CD and he came home on a Saturday and he uh, 
listened to the record all day Saturday, and he said, I just let the floodgates open. I just cried and cried and cried, and then I listened to it all day Sunday, and I cried and cried and cried. And he said, and then I, I put it away, and I went back to work on Monday morning, and I started to live my life again. And when he said, I, I started to live my life again, I just felt this incredible sense of, you know, joy, really, for him being able to move past that grief that had been so hard to get through and get to. And I, I, that's probably one of the best things I ever got from some feedback from one of my songs. Wow, that is that is great. Phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that Craig, the guy who set this interview up, was telling me, he said, did you know that Garth Brooks used to sing demos for her? (laughs) Yeah, he did. He did. Tell us about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I remember knowing him, you know, and then I saw, I ran into him. I was actually, I was in ASCAP for my number one party for Willie, for the Willie Nelson song and his manager, Bob Doyle, walked in and Garth was with him and I remembered him, you know, I didn't know him that well. I mean, I just, Oh, Hey Garth, you know, and he, he was getting ready to put out his first album at that time. And Bob said, Oh, Garth just made this really great record. I went, Oh, great. I can't wait to hear it. You know, and Waylon Jennings was there at my number one party. Willie couldn't come, but Waylon came instead to celebrate. And I, I just remember Garth just looking at like, looking at me like wow you're having a number one party you got Waylon Jennings and I'm like yeah I know it's amazing and of course you know Garth was getting ready to just blow the roof off (laughs) within the next six months he started you know putting that record out and it was just wonderful to see him just soar to the top he's still broken all these records and he's just as down to earth now as he ever was he's he's one of those people you just can't believe he's real you know he's really a great guy I follow you on Instagram, and you post a lot of really interesting things. And all the listeners out there, it's they can look you up on Instagram. Yeah. I wanted to know what you find it like to be interacting with all these people. Your music is resonating with them, and they, they feel uh, a kinship with you, and they're there following along. What's that like? It's a great feeling. It's a celebratory feeling because, you know, writing is so solitary. And when I write and I'm just sitting there pouring over a song, none of that enters into my psyche. You know, I don't engage in, oh, and this will be great. People's going to like this. People are going to like that because it, it interrupts that creative flow for me. Writing is like just something coming through that's very, very personal. And once it's finished, it's, like throw it out there and then get the feedback. And that's, that's wonderful. I love that aspect of it. But, um, and I like Instagram because it's, for some reason, people have not made it too much about anything besides just life's moments, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, if you go to Twitter, you can get really bogged down in a lot of politics and stuff and vitriol and whatever. And even on Facebook, uh, of course, that's a mess right now, as we know, um, but Instagram, which unfortunately has been bought by Facebook, <laughs> so yeah. who knows how long it'll last. Instagram just feels like a, a photo album you're sharing with your friends and family. You know, it doesn't feel as invasive to me. People just say, Hey, I like that. You know, there's not a lot of uh, back and forth 
when you post something. I don't mind back and forth. It's just, you know, it's very, it's a very positive experience. I find it. It's my favorite one of all those crazy social media things. <laughs> yeah, you make it seem very personal. Well, it is to me. It's, um, you know, I have an artist page on Facebook, and I just don't really post personal stuff up on there. And when I post things on Instagram, I'm very aware that I'm I'm very cautious about it. You know, I mean, I I still feel that it's it's going to be made public. You know, so I don't put a whole bunch of pictures of my family or my grandson. I think I posted a picture of him the other day because he just had this funny little sneer on his face. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually kind of a funny picture. But I only showed half his face even then, so <laughs> anyway. You were mentioning earlier in the interview that you felt like you were just getting started. So what is maybe a dream of yours for the future? Something that you would like to undertake, something that you would like to do that you haven't yet? Well, I've really gotten, I mean, I love making music and performing. But if you come to one of my shows, you know, there's always these stories in between the songs and embedded in the stories, there's this kind of agenda that I have to inspire people to, to, to allow themselves to really understand the importance of finding a way to exercise their right to be creative in in their lives, like make an appointment with themselves, you know, like really go there and explore that. Um, there's so much that people have to express that I think doesn't, they don't get around to expressing Sometimes they think I'm not creative and I don't have any right to speak or, or they're bogged down with their job and they feel like they don't have any time. And if you're waiting to know how to do it, you'll, you'll never do it because there's, by definition, creativity and being creative is, by definition, crossing over the line of what you know into what you don't know yet. And so when you come to one of my workshops, you're going to hopefully get a little bit more comfortable with not knowing what you're doing which is where creativity is alive and well. And that's where you get clues from the universe. You know, it's like, I've never written a song because I knew how to write the song. I've only written the songs as they've unfolded in front of my eyes and ears, revealing to me what they are. Uh, and it's always like unwrapping a present, really. And I've gotten better at rearranging what comes out, you know, and, and making it stronger or making it clearer, all that kind of, workmanlike stuff but the actual birth of a song or painting or a piece of art or a book or a story or a poem is a unfolding of new going something new going in where it hasn't been before and that you can't do that from knowing what it is so i think the the absolute center of my purpose in the world <laughs> besides to entertain people feels like sometimes just finding ways to convince people of that, you know, to have fun and make stuff up. <laughs> hmm. You find that many people don't give themselves enough credit in terms of how much creative ability they might have. They don't understand that they have access to the exact same amount of creative flow that anybody else has. So when I explain to somebody about creativity, I say, well, what if creativity is oxygen what if it's like the air that's just here between us so i'm breathing and you're breathing 
So why am I breathing? Why do why do some people breathe deeper than others? Why do some people get more out of that oxygen? It's because they're in shape. So if you're not in shape creatively, you won't be using what's there available to you to use. Or you or if you or if you think you don't have the ability to be creative, you're only going to be breathing very shallowly from that creative flow. And and there's a way to fix that if you just redefine your relationship to it and you and you do that through play that's how i get people to experience being creative i don't try to tell them to be creative i just say hey let's play <laughs> let's play this game you know and it starts the flows it starts the juices flowing hmm. and it's uh, it's really only because people say to themselves i'm not creative and if you actually have that thought and you're holding that thought i'm not creative that's what I've been told or that's what I believe, that thought is like a cap that goes right over the hole in the top of your head where creativity comes through. It just literally shadows right over the space where creativity would come in. So one another exercise I might have is just to get them to move that out of the way. And there's lots of tricks for doing that, you know. What's really exciting for me is to see someone who's really, really been stubbornly stuck not thinking of themselves as creative, finding a way to help them get unstuck. It's really quite um, quite a joyful rush for me to see when that happens. What do you find yourself doing when you're in a collaborative situation and you're a little intimidated or a lot intimidated? Oh, that's a great question. Well, I can hearken back to one of the times when that happened the most pronounced for me was when I was invited to write a song with Neil Diamond, who is one of those iconic artists whose music literally was the wallpaper of all my years in high school. And I mean, he was just somebody I never thought I'd ever get to meet, much less be invited to write with. He came to Nashville probably around 1996 and he and I were sitting in a room and, and the reason he, he called me is because Waylon Jennings said, well, make sure you get to write with Beth Chapman when you go to Nashville. <laughs> so <laughs> I ended up getting this phone call from his assistant saying, Neil would like to write a song with you. And I was like, okay, <laughs> all right. Uh, yeah. So I go to this house that he had rented and, you know, he was lovely. We had a cup of tea. We had a little chat and we went to the piano and I was absolutely blank. I mean, my brain was so in shock and I was so intimidated to be writing with Neil Diamond. So I literally, the only thing I need to do was to confess. So I just said, Neil, I am so blown away that I'm sitting here with you. I can't believe I'm writing with Neil Diamond. And so I'm, nothing's happening here. It's like, I got like, I don't even, I'm a blank slate. And he leaned into me and he got this great look on his face and he said, you know, that happens to me too. I mean, when I sit down to write with myself, I can't get over it. I just can't get over that I'm writing with Neil Diamond and I just go blank. <laughs> <laughs> Which totally disarmed me and made me relax and have fun. So we ended up writing a song uh, called Deep Inside of You, I think is the name of it. And I got to sing it and play it on a on a filmed version of it at the Ryman Auditorium. I think it was at the Ryman Auditorium. It was amazing. It was still like a dream. It's just, there's a YouTube video of it out there somewhere. But it was so amazing to to be able to, to work with him. What a masterful, masterful artist and songwriter. But a really nice guy, too. Hmm. 
What is the best thing about being Beth Nielsen Chapman? Um, I don't know about being me specifically. I think the best thing about being is just being, being alive. I think having gone through cancer and brain tumors and all sorts of other interesting uh, hairpin turns, just being here and being healthy has been really enjoyable. I think when you've been sick before and you're not sick now, you really, you really notice the difference. The other thing I've really worked on and I think have enjoyed freeing myself from being too worried about what I don't have to worry about, you know, I mean, I remember being in my twenties and thirties looking in the mirror thinking, Oh, I don't, I'm not very pretty or whatever. And, you know, I kind of missed those decades because then when I get in my forties, I'd look back and say, I looked great. You know, I missed it. (laughs) Hmm. So now when I look in the mirror, I say, you know, for 82, you look amazing. So that really (laughs) helps me. It's a perspective thing, I think. So maybe hopefully I can inspire other people to, to have that perspective and just not take things too seriously. Enjoy the day. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would kind of give you, in closing, the microphone. For anyone listening, we just don't know in this day and time who is listening. What would you say to anyone who is tuned in? I would say you're only here for a little while. And what I've learned is wherever possible to move towards a place of being as fully creative as I possibly can. And that can be how I'm going to make that omelet in the morning and noticing how much fun it is to make stuff up or to play around with things. Don't miss it. You know, don't think just because you're harried and you got to go to work and you got to get out the door. I mean, if you're slicing up that onion and you're putting it on the side of the plate in a certain way or whatever it is, you know, like, not missing, don't miss the moment you're in. And of course, I, I still miss a lot of moments that I'm in because I'm, you know, bopping around doing too many things as we all are. But if there's anything I would say will extend your life and extend your experience into a deeper place, it's just noticing the moment you're in. What is there to see? What are the colors? What are the smells? What are the feelings? And embrace that fully. And you'll have a lot of things to write about, to paint about, and life will be poetry. Wow. Well, all the listeners out there, they can visit BethNielsenChapman.com. Nielsen is spelled N-I-E-L-S-E-N, BethNielsenChapman.com. Who is Beth Nielsen Chapman? How would you define yourself? Um, well, I would say I'm... Um... I'm just an, uh, a child unfolding into the next thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, th- kind of, that's kind of in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for spending time with us. Well, thank you, and you've asked some wonderful questions, Paul. I really enjoyed talking to you, mm-hmm. and um, I you know, hope someone's inspired by what we've talked about today to, to get up in the morning and, and create something. Beautifully put. Thanks. All right. Well, thank you again, and until next time. All right. Thanks so much. All right. And send us a link so we can put it out there in the world and let people know. Absolutely. Thank you for that. All right. Take care. All right. You too. Okay. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.
The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment. For information, visit thepaulleslie.com. Thank you for being with us. Until next time.